0: I've entitled our message, and we're kind of getting towards the end of our series on the church. I've entitled this Job One, and no, it is not an advertisement for the Ford Motor Company. Had to clear that up already with the sound booth. But I want to talk about something we really don't talk a lot about that is increasingly at risk in the Western world and the Western church. For more than 40 years, a lighthouse stood on a large peninsula jutting into the Tasman Sea in southern Australia. It stood at a place where it shouldn't have been built, luring ignorant ships into the very rocks they were trying to avoid. Cliffs around Cape St. George, just south of Jervis Bay, were notorious for shipwrecks. And so it was decided that a lighthouse was needed for the safe navigation of coastal shipping. So in 1857, when I was four, the colonial architect Alexander Dawson began looking for a site suitable for a lighthouse on Cape St. George. Unfortunately, Dawson, and this is the problem, was more interested in the ease of construction rather than providing an efficient navigation aid. So when the pilot's board went to verify the location that Dawson chose, they found that the site was not visible from the required approaches. In other words, ships couldn't see it that well. They also found his map suffered discrepancies so grave that it was impossible to decide whether positions marked on the map really exist. So a bad map maker. The board also suspected that Dawson had chosen the site just because it was situated closer to a quarry where he planned to obtain the stones from to build the lighthouse. Despite all of these glaring deficiencies and a disagreement by the majority of the board that needed to decide about this lighthouse, for reasons not known, the chairman of the board authorized the construction of the lighthouse. And for the next four decades, this ill-sighted lighthouse was responsible for two dozen shipwrecks. Eventually, in 1899, the lighthouse was replaced by the Point Perpendicular Lighthouse in a much more suitable location on the same part of the coast. Even after decommissioning, the lighthouse continued to cause problems and shipwrecks because on moonlit nights, the golden sandstone tower glowed in the dark. So near the turn of the century, the tower was reduced to rubble to prevent any further disaster. A lighthouse is not a tourist attraction. It is for some of us, but that's not why they're built. doesn't exist so that artists have more creativity in painting seascapes. They exist as a warning against shallows, so ships don't run into shallows, hit rocks, uh, be broken up underneath, and sailors drown. Rocky coasts sometimes, they can't be seen at night. They exist to save lives. That's why lighthouses exist. Churches are like lighthouses. We are intended to, if we take the Bible seriously at all, to guide people to eternal safety. We act as a warning against living outside of design, God's design for our lives, living without hope, living with false hope. Some churches have not placed themselves in a place to rescue people. They actually caused the very damage they were designed to prevent. say, well, how does that happen, Paul? What I want to talk about today is theological drift. Theological drift, when churches no longer believe what we historically believed. When it becomes too politically correct to simply believe the Bible as it was given to us. The Puritan colleges who settled in New England in the 1630s, had a nagging concern about the churches they were building? How would they ensure that the clergy would be literate? Their answer was Harvard University, a school that was established to educate the ministry and adopted the motto, Truth for Christ and the Church. That's Harvard's motto when it was founded, Truth for Christ and the Church. In fact, it's not just Harvard. Down in the States, several of the key Ivy League colleges were actually created to be colleges and or seminaries for clergy so that you would have a conservative Protestant faith there. Harvard was named after a pastor named John Harvard, and it would be more than 70 years before the school had a president who wasn't actually a pastor. All their former presidents were pastors. Nearly four centuries later, Harvard's Organization of Chaplains has elected as its next president, now this happened in 2005, so the president of Harvard's Chaplains, a school that was founded in order to create clergy for conservative Protestant churches, its president was Greg Epstein, he's the author of the book Good Without God and he is an atheist, full on atheist. The president of the Chaplains Union basically. Yet many Harvard students, some raised in families of faith, others never quite certain how to label their religious identities, attest to the influence that Epstein has had on their spiritual lives. He was an author, I believe, the book Good Without God. The same trend is happening all throughout the Western world. Denominations that exist worldwide, in fact, if you go to places like Africa in particular and Asia Uh, probably some in South America, where you will find denominations, historic denominations that in America or in North America, both Canada and the U.S., you can hardly find conservative churches in these denominations. If you go to Africa and South America, they're all conservative. They all believe the Bible the way it was written, and they look at North America with great concern because it's so hard for the churches in the same denominations here to actually simply believe the faith that was once given to the saints, which is the passage we're gonna be looking at today. Why? Why is the Western church, the Western world, struggling with its theological integrity? Why is it so hard to believe the truth? Why is it so hard actually to believe in the concept of truth? Why do churches in the Western world not consistently carry the same gospel? Why can somebody visit a dozen dozen churches in Calgary today and get 10 or 11 different views of the same passage in the scriptures? Because the church in the Western world has not done job one, which is keep the faith. Now, this, this battle is not new. This battle actually began as soon as Christianity was born. The early issues were just a little different than ours are, but some are the same. So when Christianity was born, what were the, what were the early Christians witnesses of? The resurrection, right? That's what started the church, basically. They were witnesses of the re- resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. And so early on in the church, these are the kinds of battles that were fought, battle over the truth of the resurrection. You get in the book of 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul is actually defending the fact that only 20 or so years before, Jesus had been physically raised from the dead. He's making that argument in 1 Corinthians because people were already not believing that it was true. It only took one generation for people to question the basic tenets of Christianity. The nature of Jesus was at risk and that is still at risk. You have cults today and some religious groups that don't believe that Jesus is a member of the Trinity but that he's a created being, that he's not really God. That's still going on in certain movements today. That was at risk in the era of the the first century. The Christians' relationship to the Old Testament. Are Christians really sort of meant to be Jewish and we sort of have to keep all of the Old Testament law? That was a big theological debate in the first century which lent itself to what, what, what did a Christian life look like? What could we do? What couldn't we do? The nature of salvation. Was it faith or is it by works? All those things were at risk. Even in the first century, there was always a battle to keep faith, the faith, pure. The church has always dealt with it. Jude writes about this battle. I want to read that with you, part of the book of Jude. It's on page 189 in your New Testament, so you get about three quarters of the way through the book in front of you there, the Bible in front of you. You'll start the New Testament. It begins with page one again. Page 189 is the book of Jude. I don't know if I've ever preached from this book. It's just this one-page book. There are a couple of verses in this book that it's likely you've heard, possibly memorized. But it's a fascinating book and Jude pulls no punches. Jude, uh, there is only one chapter, so we'll say chapter one, uh, verse 1, page 189. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you would contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he's kept in eternal bonds until under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, revile angelic majesties, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! They have gone the way of Cain, for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. James is quite a writer, isn't he? You don't hear language like that very often in the scriptures. Very interesting. Just a couple of key points here. And then a couple of applications for us. First, there is a constant struggle that undergirds God's or the church's mission. Now, James, uh, or Jude, I should say, is somebody we're not exactly sure of his connection to Jesus, but here's what most scholars believe. It says here that he's the brother of James, We know that one of the Jameses in the scriptures is the brother of Jesus. So a lot of people believe he's actually also the brother of Jesus, but he's a little humble, and so he doesn't claim that. He calls himself the bondservant of Jesus. But we do believe that Jude is the brother of James, who is also the brother of Jesus, which means Jude is a brother of Jesus as well. We're not sure, because there's quite a few Jameses It was a common name. This is likely written later in the New Testament writing era. So, if you had to guess a date for Jude, it's probably 70 or 80 AD. It's not the last book in the New Testament. We believe that was probably Revelation. But it's sort of later, after a lot of things have been written. So, this is sort of the contextual picture. Jesus died and rose again. The early church became witness to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, And a theological understanding of that began to develop. Uh, You have books that Paul wrote about what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection actually meant. So a theological understanding of that was born. And then after that, the epistles were written. Paul's writings and others, John's writings, James, and so on. And so you've got this, you know, maybe 40, 50, 60 A.D. era. The gospel is spreading. The epistles were written, inspired by the Spirit of God. Everything's going well. The apostles are still sort of the head of the church, if you will, under Jesus. So the apostles are apostling. Made up a new word there for you. But there was vulnerability in the church. Great vulnerability in this movement. I want you to think about the differences between the world then and the world today and why the church would have been vulnerable. They had no printing press. So it's not like right after Matthew wrote his gospel or Mark wrote his gospel or Romans was written, it's not like they said, hey, let's go down to Kinko's or whatever the printers are here and let's run off a couple million of these and get them spread out, you know, in Judea and Samaria and so on Give some to Paul to take on his missions trips. Manuscripts are still being written, copied by hand. Now, great care was taken to make sure they were accurate. But my point is, it took a while for manuscripts of the Gospels and the Epistles to be disseminated. So there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the apostles and key teachers to get things right and keep them right because we didn't have all the epistles. Not just that, there was no photo ID. So people couldn't clearly identify apostles and others very easily because you didn't have You didn't have sort of film and things like that, so an apostle could come to a town who's a false apostle. He could claim to be somebody he wasn't. He could claim that he came out of the Jerusalem church and he was very devout, and he could lead people astray. There was great vulnerability. There was no historic, multi-generational traditions. The church was early in its movement phase. It was vulnerable. So imagine how easy it would be for somebody to come into that situation claim to be an apostle or Christian leader, look for money, look for power, look for influence, and not really be representing God and the gospel and the truths of Christianity. So Jude addresses this, this vulnerability, this struggle in the early church to keep things doctrinally pure. He addresses it actually with an athletic term, which I really appreciate. Thank you, Jude. And he uses a word ep all right? You can just forget that immediately. But that's the word ep The only reason I give you that word is we probably get our word agonize from this, all right? So this struggle is, is sort of in the center of this word. The basic meaning was the intense effort in a wrestling match. That's our struggle to keep Christianity pure. And it's actually in the present tense, which in the Greek language means it's a constant continuous struggle to keep the church's doctrine pure. The church is always on the mat in that struggle. So for, you know, you don't hear this, and Bethany certainly hasn't been like this because you have rich traditions of teaching the Bible and, and, and really caring about that, but once in a while you run into maybe a, a little bit of a naive Christian, and they'll say, well, you know, doctrine doesn't really matter. Just just love Jesus, you know? Well, It would be hard to figure out a statement that's more ignorant than that. Because doctrine is what you believe about Jesus. Doctrine is everything. Theology is simply our beliefs. To say, well, our beliefs don't matter, just love Jesus, is to completely miss the point of why you follow Jesus. The doctrine of who he is is why we follow him. My son was a wrestler for a while. And when he was little, he had his little... They call them onesies. I forget what they call them. They're like onesies. I don't think they call them onesies. I forget what they're called. There's a word out there. A singlet. That's it, right? Somebody say singlet. I think it's a singlet or something like that. It's something a man should never wear. But nonetheless, when you start them out in their little singlets at four, they just keep wearing them. All right? Anyway, so he had his little singlet and I remember when he was just a real tiny little guy with little arms and little legs and he'd go out there and he'd wrestle and, and he got better and he got bigger and eventually he was kind of coming into high school as a wrestler and then he stopped because he wanted to play lacrosse instead, should have stayed with wrestling, that's a whole other story. Anyway, so he, he was a wrestler and, and he would wrestle me at home and I probably had about 70 or 80 or 90 pounds on him. And he still could inflict pain at a level that was shocking because he knew how to do it. And I remember one of the things he said about wrestling, he says, Dad, nobody gets pinned in wrestling. Nobody ever gets pinned. say, what do you mean nobody gets pinned? People get pinned all the time. He said, no, Dad, people allow themselves to lose when the pain is too great. When somebody's ready to take your shoulder out of joint, that's when you let it go to the mat and you just lose. When somebody's got your face and you know, cross arms across your face and they're breaking your nose and they're putting their arm over your mouth so you can't breathe, you choose to get pinned. You choose to lose, to stay alive. This is a really great term that Jude is using here. Peter, uh, Peter I'm having that issue with my voice cutting out. Can you just let him know that, please? Thank you. So you're choosing to, to lose at a certain point in the match. The church is always on the mat in that struggle. It was a battle in AD 70 and AD 80, and nothing has changed. It's still a battle. There's a constant struggle that undergirds God's mission, the church's mission, and it's the struggle to keep things true because if we don't, nothing matters. If we don't have a gospel that's got theological integrity, if we can't present the Bible in a way that has theological integrity, nothing matters. Second point, the struggle is to preserve and protect a body of truth. Thanks, Peter. To preserve and protect a body of truth, the faith, as it's called here, an unchanging and permanent foundation of the church. Now, the point here is twofold. There is this phrase, the faith, and it's not just unique here. So there's two points in here. One is the permanence of it. The faith once for all delivered to the saints is how he puts it. This faith which was once for all handed down. There's a past tense there. He's looking back on a body of truth. That is the second kind of point here is there was a recognized body of truth, a recognized set of truths, set of doctrinal beliefs that he's talking about. The faith, definite article. Not, hey, let's stay in faith. Let's stay in the faith, the faith we're looking back on. It's what the apostles believed. Now, this is identified in a few places in the New Testament, sort of loosely and not with great definition, but one phrase you'll find in the book of Acts is the apostles' teaching. That would be sort of the faith, the apostles' teaching. Uh, The word the faith occurs out, remember Paul at the end of his ministry, he says, I have kept the faith. His point was, He had maintained integrity in his ministry to to keep clear and focused on this faith, this body of truth that he had been taught. So we're not sure how far that expands, but let's just look at it this way. It refers to the basic early tenets of Christianity, like the purpose of Jesus' death. What did Jesus' death accomplish? It was a substitutionary atonement. It paid the penalty for our sins. That's a part of the faith. That Jesus was the son of God. That he was sinless. That's a part of the faith. The implications of the resurrection, that 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 gives us the power of the Spirit within when we trust in Jesus. It gives us eternal life because we can't be resurrected without his resurrection. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. Gives us the forgiveness of sins. Paul says if there's no resurrection, we're still sort of stuck in our sins. So it would be the implications of the resurrection, the nature of Jesus, maybe the second coming. That was something the apostles talked about quite a bit. But either way, what I would say is, it's the A issues. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It's the A issues, the things that are really important, the things that are worth sort of fighting over, things that are worth losing or leaving a church over if it goes the other direction, the things that the Bible teaches that are essential to our faith. It's not secondary issues, maybe B issues or C issues or D issues that really don't matter that much, but we all have some preferences. It's the A issues. That's the faith. These issues are the basis of salvation. If we don't get them right, we're giving away everything that matters. They, They establish the solution to our lostness. They solve the sin problem for you and I. They give us eternal life, they change us, they give us purpose. And if those points of theology are undermined and twisted and thwarted and changed, then we offer nothing. We offer nothing through the Bible. And churches that do this are lighthouses that, like that first illustration, actually cause shipwrecks rather than prevent them. We have to stay true to the faith. Third, the threat of the faith. So what was going on there? The threat of the faith then was a perversion of the gospel and the result was the judgment of a holy God. Now Jude is, Jude's pretty brutal. I mean, he writes in a pretty direct and, and you, there's a lot of emotion in what he's saying. He uses some tough illustrations. Now we're not sure, for sure, what false teaching is behind Jude's correction, but we have some good ideas. No matter what the actual sort of heresy was, it was resulting in a word he calls licentiousness. So just think of loose immorality, and so some say this could be that people were reacting to Paul's theology. Remember how Paul said in Romans, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. So some people then developed what was called antinomianism, all right, you can forget this word after I explain it too, anti or against, nomas is in Greek law, so against the law. Paul taught we're not under the law, so some early Christians thought, we're not under the law, we can do whatever we want and they used it as an excuse to sort of live immoral lifestyles, and Paul said, no, 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 that's not the point of not being under the law. The Holy Spirit is to guide us towards the same intention the law had in the first place, so they they misunderstood that. It was a wrong view of their freedom in Christ. It's possible that's what's going on here. It's more likely related to something that was called Gnosticism. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time explaining Gnosticism, Mostly because I'm not an expert in it, but in Gnosticism, there was a dualism. Sort of two principles exist in the world and in each of us good and evil. And we relate to God through sort of our spirit. That's the good principle. And there was a view that the body was sort of evil no matter what. So Christians who were Gnostics kind of felt like, hey, I can go have my devotions and pray to God and connect with Him in my spirit. My body's sort of evil anyway, so I can go do whatever I want with my body. So there was this belief that I can can love God over here with my spirit, and I can go to a pagan temple of prostitution with my body, and I'm just fine. Well, that isn't the intention of the New Testament. Our body, our spirit, we are one being. And so again, it was a heresy that allowed people to live immoral lives. This completely undermined the transformation that the gospel intended in our lives. And so that's sort of possibly a couple of the heresies that Jude is speaking to. He said as a result of this, they're denying Jesus Christ, possibly through their actions, possibly through their view of Jesus. We're not sure. But Jude is going after the people who are spreading this. His brother, James, similar verse. It's a warning to anybody who does what I do or Stands up on a platform and tells people what they should believe. James 3 verse 10, he says, you know, don't try to get yourself into a teaching role real easily. You know, you don't really wanna be there because why? You will receive greater judgment. That's a warning in the book of James. If you stand behind a pulpit, you're gonna be responsible at a higher level for what you say because you're trying to lead people, which means you can lead them astray, so be very, very careful. Jude is giving a similar warning to his brother. He's saying God has a history of judging theological behavior and movements that he's not happy with, and those judgments are pretty brutal and extreme. So Jude gave his church readers an ugly history lesson from the Old Testament. Some of it's pretty interesting stuff, especially one of the stories I'm gonna tell you in a second, because it's gonna blow your mind. So first he just says, you know, there was unbelieving Israel. In verse 5, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. We're not sure exactly what he's referring to here, but likely he's saying, hey, the children of Israel saw God's power. They saw all these miracles. They were delivered from Egypt. And yet what happened when they sent the spies into the promised land? A whole bunch of them weren't ready to get on board with this whole God thing. You know, and they kind of blame Moses for bringing them out there into the desert. They didn't really believe. So what did God do? He let a couple generations of them die in the wilderness and they could never see the promised land. That might be what he has in mind or it might be more, a more acute judgment like we'll talk about in a few moments. Then he gives another illustration, which I'm going to tell you, this is just the most bizarre story in the scripture, but Jude gives some credibility to it. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. All right, so this is a really sort of freaky story that's in the Bible or not. Theologians disagree on it. I'm not sure what I believe on this one, but it comes from Genesis chapter six, most likely. In Genesis chapter six, there's a statement. Yeah, you can look it up if you want to. Actually, I'm gonna read it for you. We got time, I think. I say that somewhat innocently. Genesis chapter 6, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So this is soon after creation. The population is growing. It says that men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Well, that makes sense. Boys and girls, that's good. That the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. And then there was this result of these unions between the sons of God and the daughters of men says that there were Nephilim on the earth. And that word can mean giants, it can mean something else. But it talks about the relationship between these sons of God and daughters of men. They say, well, what, what does that mean? All right, well, we're not sure, but one of, the, one of the explanations is pretty bizarre and exciting. Some say the sons of God are simply the line of Seth. You know, Adam and Eve had a few sons, one of them was Seth. And that Seth, the Sethite line, is the line from Adam and Eve that kept the truth. They followed the true God. And so some would say it's just the line of Seth starts intermarrying with the line of Cain, uh, sort of the line that isn't following the true God. And so you've got the Sethites marrying, you know, it's kind of like, you know, there's no Christian girls at youth group, I'm just gonna marry the pretty girl from school that isn't really a follower of Jesus. Some say that's really all that's talking about is sort of the Old Testament believers intermarrying with people who weren't and then, you know, God wasn't real happy. But there's another explanation that's really sort of out there. But Jude gives it some credibility and so does the book of Enoch, which is not in the scriptures, but they're both referencing the same thing. Some say the sons of God are angels, which we know in the Old Testament in particular, we see them appear in human form at time, like fully formed human bodies. So some say, all right, don't shoot the messenger, but this is really out there. You're gonna enjoy this. Some say that a group of angels took on human form and intermarried and interbred with human women. I get it. I know you're looking at me like I'll never believe another thing he says. Some of you were there already. So, some say that these angels took on human form and intermarried and bred with human women, and the result of this were these Nephilim, or sort of these giants. And God could not have angels doing that, so he judged them and, in a sense, took the angels out of their normal place in the world, and these angels are sort of bound right now unto judgment, not like the rest of the angels that will be in the end with Satan, but this group of angels has already been confined. I believe it' 2 Peter also talks about this. There is a group of angels that have already been judged and held for judgment, so it's not just here that mentions it, but for, in a sense, giving up their original abode as spirit beings and intermarrying and interbreeding with human women. All right, I know, it's out there. Jude gives that story some credibility. I don't know what to make of it, but it sure makes the sermon more interesting, doesn't it? All right, thank you. I'm not seeing as much affirmation as I'd like, but that's just my own insecurity. All right, then he goes into Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, so, so he's talking about these situations where God has judged things harshly. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Now this is interesting because this gives some credibility to the crazy angel story I just told you. It does. Because he doesn't just talk about immorality like a man wanting to have sex with a man, which we would view as the history of Sodom. He's talking about something else. He says strange flesh homosexuality is not strange flesh like the angels and human women thing with strange flesh. So some say what they're talking about here is not just the immoral nature of Sodom and Gomorrah, but actually the fact that if you read the history of Sodom and Gomorrah, right before God judged them, it was when the men of Sodom were going after angels that were visiting Sodom, angels that were in human form. So he's using possibly the same illustration here about this strange flesh, and he talks about then the punishment there. Jude is just full of these Old Testament illustrations about God's judgment when movements go awry. In verse 11, he he talks about these false teachers and said they've gone the way of Cain. What did Cain do? He had a religion without faith that didn't believe in blood atonement. His brother brought a blood sacrifice. His brother brought the best of his flocks to God. Cain brought veggies. Now, he was an early vegan. I get it, good for him. He was healthy-ish. Maybe, I don't know. But the reality is, he didn't believe in the sacrificial system. That's why God didn't accept his sacrifice. These leaders are going the way of Cain. They're abandoning Jesus and the atonement. They have the error of Balaam, it says in verse 11. Who was Balaam? He's an Old Testament prophet that accepted a bribe to curse Israel. He's saying that's what false teachers are like. They're taking money, but they're not working for God. He says they participated in the rebellion of Korah. That's another pretty interesting situation in the Old Testament. He says, their judgment is as certain as that of Korah. Korah and some of his buddies kind of had a problem with Moses and Aaron. They were a little bit jealous. Moses and Aaron, kind of, you know, the leaders of the Old Testament, Israel, and and, uh, Aaron is sort of the leader of the priesthood, and these other guys, they were Levites. They were to help with the consecrated stuff, the, the tabernacle system and so on but they were kind of jealous of Moses and Aaron and Aaron's priesthood. And so they kind of wanted to leave a sort of a rival religious movement. They wanted to be the clergy and and do some stuff and, and, and they kind of worked against Moses and Aaron to the point that God opened up the earth and swallowed them and their families and all their possessions. Right in the middle of two million people at a church service. That's a pretty intense situation. He says that's what these false teachers are like. They're working against God. And Jude wasn't done. He continued. I think he might have had a class or two uh, from uh, a great college in poetry because he then says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They're clouds without water, carried along by winds. They're autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. He had a way with words. But the whole point he's making is false teaching is incredibly serious. Two uh, Two quick applications as we close. Number one, doctrine or truth matters. Again, Christianity is complex. The Bible is not an easy book, and I know that sometimes people stand up here and say, "You know, the Bible—it's not hard. Everyone can." Under- I—it's hard for me, and I got a dozen years of schooling after high school or more to, to understand it. It's hard for me. It's hard because it was written thousands of years ago in multiple languages, so you need. sometimes it's good to have some aids to really help you understand context and culture and language and so on. It's not a simple book, but Christianity is not just follow Jesus, just love him. What would Jesus do? I don't like that phrase because half the time we don't know what Jesus would do, frankly, but we think we do, but there's a lot to it, and when we get things wrong, it's very serious. Now, this has never been a problem at Bethany. You know, This is a church that's believed in you know, conservative Orthodox theology ever since its founding. But it is a problem in broader evangelicalism and we certainly are dealing with that from the outside in. And as we raise children in these new generations, it's tough. Sometimes I think conservative churches have overemphasized Aspects of faith and minimized others. I think that the fact that we used to go to church when I was a kid, uh, the Flintstones and the Brushobbers would meet each other at church and we'd be there, you know, four times a week in common services Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Awana, all of those things. And now the average faithful church attender goes to church one and a half times a month that's the North America sort of view of faithful church attendance, so we just don't have exposure to truth as much as we used to, which has led to what we all would agree is sort of a level of biblical illiteracy in the Western world right now. That makes everyone easy prey for the latest thing that comes down the theological pipeline. We emphasized a personal relationship with Jesus, which I don't see in the scriptures anywhere. And I'm not saying it's not a reality, but you know, we use language that's not in the Bible. Talk about just a personal relationship with Jesus, and we stopped emphasizing the historic credibility of the Bible. Vishal Megawadi talks about this. He's a Christian scholar from India, and he shared this story after visiting. Uh, we'll talk about the empire to the south here. So he's in U.S and he's at a Christian college, and this is what he found. He said, in November 2011, I went to two classes at a Christian university in North America. I asked both. Think about this, because it's going to sound really great, but it's really terrible. How many of you would still believe Christianity if you found out tomorrow that it wasn't true? That is, that God never became a man, Jesus didn't die for our sins, that he didn't rise from the dead. So in other words, if, it was, if the credibility of Christianity was shattered, how many of you would be Christians tomorrow? Twelve hands went up. In a class of 25 students. All right, so half of the class said they would believe in Jesus even if the Bible wasn't true. you got to help me understand that. I'm a little bit left brain. Why would that happen? He had a really good answer. These sincere and devout students had grown up in Christian homes, gone to church all their lives, studied in Christian schools. Some had been in that Christian university for three years. They respected their elders who taught them that Christianity was all about faith with little concern for truth. Think about that. It's all about faith with little concern for truth. Think about the division there. Hey, if this isn't true... I don't want to be here. I hope you don't want to be here either. I only care about Jesus because I believe he historically existed, rose from the dead, and atoned for sins. If if this is fiction, I got better places to be and you certainly don't need to be listening to me. Christianity lost America because 20th century evangelicalism branded itself as the party of faith. Secularism, science, university, media, became the party of truth. That's one reason why 70% of Christian youth give up meaningful involvement in the church when they grow up. Secularism acquired the truth brand by default because evangelicalism began defining the church's mission as cultivating faith rather than promoting a knowledge of truth. He's making a very clear point and I think he's right. The Bible is a complex book. But we we need to defend everything that even undergirds Jesus. The archaeology of the Old Testament, the historicity of the stories, its truthfulness, its veracity. Or else why would we follow Jesus when we get to the New Testament? Who cares about Jesus if he's not who he says he is? Twisting just a few concepts changes everything and empties our faith of its power and reality. In his book, Dreamland, journalist Sam Quinone's points to one paragraph of false information that helped pave the way for the whole surgeon addicts to the highly addictive opiate OxyContin and probably others. Before 1980, the rule for prescribing narcotic painkillers was as little as possible for as short a time as possible. Doctors were very careful with narcotics. Doctors were taught that the risks of addiction were simply too high. As Ms. Quinones recounts, this thinking changed when Dr. Herschel Jick And a colleague submitted a one-paragraph letter to the New England Journal of Medicine noting that according to their data of 12,000 patients treated with opiates in a Boston hospital before 1979, only four had grown addicted. So they said, we have a study of 12,000 patients, only four have addiction issues, so opiates are fine. But Quononis writes, there was no data about how often, how long, or at what dose those patients were given opiates because doctors had always prescribed them very carefully but now without saying the real study, doctors just heard, hey, opiates aren't addictive. Cited and recited, Dr. Jick's letter bolstered a growing push within medicine to treat pain more aggressively. By the time the pharmaceutical company Purdue Frederick introduced a time-release painkiller called OxyContin in 1996, the accepted wisdom was that opiates are nearly non-addictive. And all the negative opiate issues in the Western world came from that. Not that. Telling the whole truth is devastating. Just leaving out a few key details. And a cure became a curse. And a lighthouse that was meant to help people was moved and killed them. Sixth, or I'm sorry, second, the struggle for truth has never been greater. You know, there's a story that circulates in sermons. I've probably told it, I don't know, you know, we got some possibly former preachers in the audience here, Preston's here. I don't know if Preston's told it. He might have told it. I've probably told it because there's a story that comes out of the U.S. about the Secret Service. And this is about uh, money. Now, the U.S. doesn't have pretty money like Canada does. I love Canadian money. When I retire and go back to the U.S., I'm taking all my pretty money with me. So, it's this concern about sort of taking money and, and, you know, reproducing it, obviously, on your own copier and counterfeiting it and so on. So this was the sermon illustration, which, you know, it's been in churches for a long time. Popular misconception, a Christian urban legend, is that the U.S. Secret Service never shows bank tellers counterfeit money when teaching them to identify it. The agents who do the training, so the legend goes, show bank tellers only examples of genuine money so that when the phony money appears before them, they'll know it by its difference from the real thing. The story is supposed to make the point that Christians ought to study truth and never heresy. First time I heard the tale as a sermon illustration, I intuited its falseness. On checking with the Treasury Department's Minneapolis Secret Service agent in charge of training bank tellers to identify counterfeit money, my suspicion was confirmed. He laughed at the story and wondered aloud who would start it and who would believe it. Well, probably a preacher, yeah. At my request, he sent me a letter confirming that the Secret Service does not show examples of counterfeit money uh, to bank tellers. I believe it's important and valuable for Christians to know not only theological correctness, but also the ideas of those judged as heretics within the church's history. One reason is that it's almost impossible to appreciate the meaning of orthodoxy without understanding the heresies that forced its development. So there's a story that in the U.S., they train bank tellers to only look at the real thing and then they'll recognize the false, and they say, that's not, just not true. You need to understand the counterfeits. And we've got a few of them in the world today. A few of those counterfeits that are devastating. Just four quick ones. Deconstructionism. It's hermeneutical heresy. Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpretation. There are rules about interpreting literature. There are rules about interpreting scriptures. Deconstructionists deny the divine element in scriptures, that God really inspired. Deconstructionists aren't worried about the author's original intent, whether God's or the apostles, because deconstructionists believe that all interpretation is left to the end point, to the reader, that all texts are subjective, and you read the Bible today in our own context, morally and culturally, and then you just interpret it however you feel, because it's not rooted in authorial intent. And if there's two words I want you to always remember, it's what was the author's intent when he wrote it? Because there's no way you can know what it means unless you understand that. That is the guiding principle of conservative Protestant theology. What was the author's intent? Deconstructionism basically is asking what Satan said to Eve. Has God really said? It's the same lie. Gender issues. Oh, it's five minutes to close. We'll just move on. I love everybody. But I don't agree with everybody. Now we're in a world where if you disagree with somebody, you're intolerant and hateful. And that's very sad. I love a world where free speech abounds and crazy ideas and good ideas can all be in the arena of ideas and crazy ideas show up for what they are, crazy ideas. I don't like a world where we are forced to shut our mouths or we're viewed as bigots. That's terrible. Because how can we have a conversation? But we're past that. We live in a world where the gender issues just can't be talked about or else we're viewed in a way that none of us really want to be viewed as. But this identity issue thing is a real thing. If I've got a, a guy friend and he and I really like each other, in I would say in an inappropriate way and... He's gonna identify as a woman now and I'm gonna identify as, the, in, as a guy. Now you've really got what historically would have been a homosexual relationship but now he's identifying as a woman and I'm identifying as a guy so really is it any more homosexual because one of us is a woman? When you think about it, it undoes all of the sexual commands in the Old Testament in one way or another. Our biology matters. God made them male and female The reality is, I get it that the fall has affected our human sexuality and our views about it. I get that, and it has. But we can't undo nature and God's creation to accommodate a culture. Gender issues. It's gonna be a real challenge for the church. Because anybody who holds a historic view of sexuality is gonna be viewed extremely negatively, which means I'm gonna be retiring at about the right time. Maybe a little late. Third, pluralism. Philosophical pluralism. There is no absolute truth. Nobody can claim they have a superior belief system. World religions are all equal. Converting others, believing others need to be converted to what you believe is arrogance. Because all systems are the same. All world religions are the same. There's truth in everything. The only sin is to believe you've got the truth and others don't. That's pluralism and we don't fit really well into that. We believe Jesus is the only way. It's a problem. It's a pressure on the church. And universalism. God won't ultimately reject anybody. In the end, everyone's gonna be saved through Jesus one way or another. Either all roads lead to Jesus, all religions lead to Jesus, or at the end, Jesus is just gonna accept everybody. I so wish that it was all true. I so wish that I could fit into this world. I so wish that I could. And I wish you could too. But if we did, Jude wouldn't write. I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. And I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. It's always been a struggle. It's never going to change. I think it's worse now that it's been in a couple hundred years. But it's not going to change to just believe God has spoken. God, thank you for your word and I pray that you would help each one of us. I'm sure I'm not alone, we all wanna be liked, we all wanna fit in, but we're, it's just not possible in the world we live in and I pray for every young person here and every child that's in the other part of the building right now. This is going to be a hard world for them. I pray for every parent here This is a hard world for them. And I pray that throughout the world, the Spirit of God in places that teach the truth, and there are so many, that you would help every church that is faithful to you to flourish and thrive and grow and expand your kingdom, and that people would, by your Spirit, have a sense of truth, be convicted by the truth, and find refuge in Jesus, the only solution.